Chapter 8, Part 1 of The Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 8 In the Wilderness, Part 1. Stuart's brilliant figure was seen no more in the ballroom that night, but he disappeared so quietly that his absence created no alarm at first. There was a low call for Sherburne, and the great cavalry leader and his most daring horsemen were soon up and away. Harry and Dalton, standing under the boughs of an oak, near the edge of the grounds, saw them depart, but the dancers, at least the women and girls, knew nothing. Another cannon shot came from some distant point along the stream, and its somber echoes rolled and died away among the hills, but the music of the band in the ballroom did not cease. It was the Acadians who were playing now, some strange old dance tune that they had brought far from Louisiana, taken thence by the way of Nova Scotia, from its origin in old France. They don't know yet, said Harry, but I'm thinking it will be the last dance for many a day. Looks like it, said Dalton. What time is it, Harry? Past two in the morning. And here comes Colonel Talbot and Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire. The two colonels walked out on the lawn. Military cloaks were thrown over their shoulders, and all signs of merrymaking were gone from their faces. They stood side by side, and with military glasses, were sweeping the horizon toward the river. Presently they saw Harry and Dalton, standing under the boughs of the oak, and beckoned to them. "'You know?' said Colonel Talbot. "'Yes, sir, we do,' replied Harry. "'We saw General Stuart and his staff ride away, because a messenger had come, stating that divisions of Hooker's army were about to cross the Rappahannock.' "'That is true, but we wish no panic here. Go back in the house, lads, and dance. Officers are scarcer there than they were half an hour ago.' But you two lads will return to General Jackson before dawn, while Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire and I will gather up our young men and return to our own place. Harry and Dalton obeyed promptly and took their places again in the dancing, but they soon discovered that the spirit had gone from it. The absence of Stuart, Sherburne, and others, almost as conspicuous, was soon noted, and although those who knew gave various excuses, they were not satisfactory. Gradually, the belief spread that the long vacation was over. After Fredericksburg, the armies had spent four months in peace along the Rappahannock. But there was certainty in the minds of all that the armed peace had passed. The music ceased by and by. The girls and the women went away in their carriages or on horseback. The lights were put out, and the heroes of the ballroom, veterans of the battlefield too, went quietly to their commands once more. The youths, including their new friend, Julien de Langer, parted shortly before dawn, and their parting was characteristic. See you again, I think, at the edge of the wilderness, where we'll be holding converse with Hooker, said St. Clair. At any rate, you can look for me in the White House with my boots on, said Happy Tom, returning to his original boast. Then they shook hands and hurried away to join the two colonels, leaving de Langer, with Dalton and Harry. Gallant spirits, said the young Louisianan, I like them. As fine as silk, both of them, said Harry with enthusiasm. 
I'm glad we've met you, Delanger, and I hope you'll be equally glad you've met us. We'll see you again after the battle, whenever and wherever it may be. Many thanks, said Delanger. It gives me much pride to be taken into your company. My command is several miles away, and therefore I must ride. Adieu. He was holding his horse's reins as he spoke. Then he leaped lightly into the saddle and was gone. A brave and true spirit, if I know one, said Harry. And now come, George. The sooner we get back to old Jack's headquarters, the better it will be for us. Do you think Hooker's army can cross? asked Dalton, looking back at the river. Of course it can. Remember that they have four hundred guns with which they can cover a passage. Didn't Burnside build his bridges and force the crossing in our face, when we had twenty thousand more men than we have now, and the Union army had twenty thousand less? Their line is so long, and they are so much superior in numbers, that we can't guard all the river. As I take it, Lee and Old Jack will not make any great opposition to the crossing, but there will be a thunderation of a time after it's made. It was sunrise when they reached their own headquarters and entered the great mess tent, where some of the officers who had not gone to the ball were already eating breakfast. They said that the general had been awake more than two hours, and that he was taking his breakfast too, in the hunting lodge. He sent for various officers from time to time, and presently Harry's turn came. Jackson was sitting at a small table, upon which his breakfast had been laid but all that had been cleared away long ago. He was reading in a small book when Harry entered, a book that the youth knew well. It was a copy of Napoleon's Maxims, which Jackson invariably carried with him and read often. But he closed it quickly and put it in his pocket. During the long rest, Jackson's face had become somewhat fuller, but the blue eyes under the heavy brows were as deep and thoughtful as ever. He nodded to Harry and said, you were present when General Stuart received the message that the enemy was advancing? Was anything more ascertained at the time? Did any other messenger come? No, sir. General Stuart mounted and rode at once. I remained at the ball until its close. No other messenger came there for him. Of that, I am sure. Very well, very well, said Jackson to himself, rather than to the young lieutenant. One message is enough. Stuart has acted promptly, as he always does. You, Mr. Kenton, I judge, have been up all night dancing? Most of it, sir. We must get ready now for another and less pleasant kind of dancing, but nothing will happen today. You'd better sleep. If you are needed, you will be called. Harry saluted and withdrew. At the door he glanced back. Jackson had taken out Napoleon's maxims and was reading the volume again. The brow was seamed with thought but his countenance was grave and steady. Harry never forgot any look or act of his great chief in those days when the shadow of Chancellorsville was hovering near. A dozen officers were in the mess tent, and they talked earnestly of various things, but Harry, unheeding their voices, lay down in a corner without taking off his clothes, and went quietly to sleep. Many came into the tent and went out of it in the course of the morning, but none of them disturbed him. A man in the army slept when he could, and there was none wicked enough to waken him until the right time for it. He slept heavily nearly all through the day, and shortly after he woke, Sherburne and two other officers, their horses splashed with mud, rode up to the hunting lodge. 
Jackson was standing in the door, and with a rising inflection he uttered one word. Well? It's true, General, said Sherburne. The enemy is advancing in heavy force towards Kelly's Ford. We saw them with our own eyes. General Stewart asked me to tell you this. He did not come himself, because, as well as we can ascertain, General Hooker has separated his army into two or three great divisions, and they are seeking the crossing at different fords or ferries. As I thought, said Jackson, it's the advantage given them by their great numbers and powerful artillery. Ride back to General Stuart, Captain, and tell him that I thank him, and you too, for your diligence. Sherburne, flushing deep with gratification, took off his cap and bowed but he knew too well to waste any time in words. That night, the Union Army laid its pontoon bridges again across the Rappahannock near Fredericksburg and began to cross in great force. Hooker, like Burnside four months before, was favored by thick fogs, but he met with practically no resistance. At dawn, a strong force under Sedgwick was across at Deep Run, and another as strong had made the passage at Kelly's Ford. The advanced riflemen of Sedgwick were engaged in scattering fire with those of Jackson before the fog had yet lifted, but the main force had made no movement. Dalton had been sent at dawn with a message telling Lee that Sedgwick was over the river. Dalton, some time after his return, told Harry of his ride and reception. When I rode up, he said, General Lee was in his tent. An aide took me in, and I gave him the message. He did not show any emotion. Several others were present, some of them staff officers as young as myself. He turned to them and said, smiling a little, Well, I heard firing not long since, and I had concluded that it was about time for some of you young idlers to come and tell me what it was all about. Go back to General Jackson, Mr. Dalton, and tell him that I send him no orders now. He knows as well what to do in the face of the enemy as I do. I brought this message, word for word, just as General Lee delivered it to me, and General Jackson smiled a little, just as General Lee had done. It's my opinion, Harry, that Lee and Old Jack haven't the slightest fear of the enemy. Harry was convinced of it, too, but he felt also the steadily hardening quality of the Army of the Potomac. Whatever Hooker might be, he was neither dilatory nor afraid. He and his comrades saw the Corps of Sedgwick, entrenching on the Confederate side of the river, and they also saw the great batteries still frowning from Stafford Heights, ready to protect their men on the plain near Fredericksburg. But Jackson made no movement. He watched the enemy calmly, and meanwhile, messengers passed between him and Lee. Both were waiting to see what their enemy, who was displaying unusual energy, would do. In the evening, they received news that the Union troops had crossed the river at two more points. They still remained stationary, waiting, and without alarm. Cavalry men on both sides were active, ranging over a wide area. Stuart came the next morning, having taken prisoners from whom he learned that three more Union corps, led by Meade, Slocum, and Howard, all famous names, had crossed the river and were advancing toward a little place called Chancellorsville, on the edge of a region known as the Wilderness. The southern general, Anderson, with a much smaller force, was falling back before them. The northern leaders had now shown the energy and celerity which hitherto had so often marked the southerner. 
hooker with seventy thousand splendid troops had gone behind lee and now three divisions were united in the forest close to chancellorsville sedgwick with his formidable corps lay in the plain of fredericksburg facing jackson and thousands of northern cavalry rode on the southern flanks harry was bewildered and so were many officers of much higher rank than he it seemed that the confederate army surrounded by overwhelming numbers was about to be crushed the exultation of hooker at the success of his movements against such able foes was justified for the moment he issued to his army a general order which said it is with heartfelt satisfaction that the commanding general announces to his army that the operations of the last three days have determined that our enemy must either ingloriously fly or come out from behind his defenses and give us battle on our own ground where certain destruction awaits him hooker it can be said again had cause for exultation he was closing in with more than a hundred thousand stern fighters and ten thousand splendid cavalrymen under stoneman were hanging on the southern flank ready to cut off retreat besides there were reserves and he could also join to the artillery the great batteries on stafford heights on the left bank of the river which had done such good service for the army of the potomac he could go into action with men and guns outnumbering his enemy more than two to one and lee and jackson would have no such hills and entrenchments as those which had protected them while they cut down the army of burnside at fredericksburg harry and his young comrades were lost in the midst and doubts of uncertainty nothing could shake their confidence in lee and jackson but yet they were only human beings had the time come when there was more to be done than any men great and brilliant as they might be could do yet they refused to express their apprehensions to one another and waited their hearts now and then beating heavily thus the last day of april passed and for harry it was more fully surcharged with suspense and anxiety than any other that he had yet known the forests and the fields were flushed with the green of early spring little wild flowers were peeping up in the thickets and now and then a bird full-throated sang on a bough indifferent to passing armies but harry saw a red tint over everything the spirit of his great ancestor had descended upon him again the acute sense which warned him of mighty and tragic events soon to come was alive and active his mind travelled backward too sometimes he did not see the men around him but saw instead pendleton the boys playing in the fields and his father he also saw again that log house in the kentucky mountains and the old old woman who had known his great-grandfather henry ware once more he heard like a whisper in his ears her parting words you will come again and you will be thin and pale and in rags and you will fall at the door i see you coming with these two eyes of mine what did they mean what did these strange words mean it was the first time in a year perhaps that he had thought of that old old woman and the log house in the mountains but he saw her now and she was strangely vivid for one so old and so withered then she vanished and for the time was forgotten completely because lee and jackson were riding past one on traveller and the other on little sorrel and it was no time to be dreaming of glens in the mountains and their peace because mighty armies were closing in bent upon the destruction of each other 
All that afternoon Harry heard in a half-circle about him the distant moaning of cannon, and he caught glimpses of galloping horsemen. Stuart, equally at home on the floor of the ballroom or the field of battle, was leading his troops in a daring circuit. When he saw that the Army of the Potomac was moving towards Chancellorsville, he had cut in on his right flank, taking prisoners, and when a Union regiment had stood in his way, attempting to bar his path to his own army, he had ridden over it and gone. All the time the sinister moanings of the guns on the far horizon never ceased. It was this distant threat that oppressed Harry more than anything else. It beat softly on the drums of his ears, and it said to him continually that his army must make a supreme effort or perish. General Jackson did not call upon him to do anything, and once he rode forward with Dalton and looked at Sedgwick's Union masses upon the plains of Fredericksburg, still protected by the batteries which had not yet moved from Stafford Heights. Harry thought for a while that Lee and Jackson would certainly attack there, but night came, and they had made no movement for that purpose. But before the sun had set, Harry, with his glasses, had been able to command a wide view. He saw high up in the air three captive balloons, from which some of Hooker's officers looked upon the southern entrenchments. Hooker also had signalmen on every height, and an ample field telegraph. What Harry did not see, he learned from the southern scouts. It seemed impossible that Lee and Jackson could break through the circle of steel, and Hooker thought so too. When the red sun set on the last day of April, the confidence of the northern general was at its height. He had sent word to Sedgwick to keep a close watch upon the enemy in his front, and if he exposed a weak point, to attack and destroy him. And if he showed signs of retreat, also to follow and attack with the utmost vigor. The moaning of the cannon ceased with the night, and it brought Harry intense relief. He was glad that those guns were silent for a while, although he knew that they would be far busier on the morrow. The bands of red and yellow left by the sun sank away, and as the cool spring night came down, a pleasant breeze began to blow through the forest. Harry felt all the thrill of a mighty movement, which was at hand, but the nature of which he did not yet know. He had no wish for sleep. The feeling of tremendous events impending was too strong, and his nervous system was keyed up too highly for such thoughts to enter his mind. He was used to great battles now, but there was a mystery, a weirdness about the one near at hand, that sometimes turned the blood in his veins to ice. They were not far from Fredericksburg, but the country about them looked wild and lonely, despite the fact that nearly 200,000 men were moving somewhere in those shades and thickets, preparing for desperate combat. Harry knew that just back of them lay the wilderness, a desolate and somber region. Dalton, a Virginian, had been there, and he told Harry that in ordinary times, one could walk through it for many miles without meeting a single human being. And they say that Hooker is along its edge with the bulk of his army, said Dalton. He is in our rear ready to attack with his veterans. What conclusion do you draw from it, Harry? I infer that Lee and Jackson will not attack Sedgwick at Fredericksburg. They will go for Hooker. They will strike where the enemy is strongest. It's their way, isn't it? Right, of course, Harry. We'll be marching against Hooker long before dawn. Dalton's prediction came true earlier than he had expected. 
Jackson marched at midnight, from his position on the Massaponics Hills, to join the small command of Anderson, which alone faced Hooker. He was as silent as ever, the figure bent forward a little, and the brow knitted with thought. Close behind him came his staff, Harry and Dalton, knee to knee. They had known as soon as Jackson mounted his horse, and turned his head southwestward, that they were marching toward the wilderness and against Hooker. Sedgwick at Fredericksburg might do as he pleased. Harry and Dalton were glad. They were quite sure now that Lee and Jackson had formed their plan, and, as they had formed it, it must be good. It was a long ride under the moon and stars. There was but little talk along the lines. The noises were those of marching feet, and not of men's voices. All the troops felt the mystery and solemnity of the night, and the deep import of their unknown mission. The dawn found them still marching, but that dawn was again heavy with the fogs and mists that rose from the broad river. The three northern balloons could see nothing. The signalmen were of no avail. The clouds of vapor rolled over the ruins of Fredericksburg and along the hills south of the river. Neither Sedgwick or his men, nor any of the Union officers on the other shore, knew that Jackson had gone, leaving only a rear guard behind. Before the fog had cleared away, Jackson with his fighting generals had joined Anderson, and they were forming a powerful line of battle near Chancellorsville and facing Hooker. End of chapter 8, part 1